Isaiah 11 and 12 was written so that you might have hope. It is to encourage God's people to place their hope, to encourage you to place your hope on the right person, the right place, so your heart will be filled with praise. So the right person, the right place, so that your heart will be filled with praise. So the question that we're wrestling with today is this. When hardship comes, where do you look for hope? You may be here today and you're not yet a Christian and the fact of the matter is the last 18 months have rocked your world and you don't know where to look for hope and you're here. Great start, keep going. We'd love to help you understand how to have hope in Jesus. So first, the right person. This text helps us to see that what we need is a righteous savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. The first five verses. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The hope of Israel, who are under the pressure in this moment in their history of an Assyrian invasion. They, they feel like the people in Kabul, Afghanistan, feel like this morning. They see what's happening, and they're like, oh, no. The spiritual hope for God's people who are facing hardship is a righteous savior. The text starts talking about a person, and that person, we know, in the New Testament is none other than Jesus Christ. So the descriptions that we're gonna see here in a moment would generally be the kind of descriptions that anybody would want in a ruler or in a leader, but it's interesting the way that it starts. Isaiah talks about a stump. And a stump isn't glorious. Nobody who hears this message is gonna be amazed if you have stumps in the back of your yard. Hey, come over tonight, let's grab some burgers and you can see my stump garden. Nobody has that. <laughs> stumps are not glorious because stumps identify a glory that used to be. There's no majestic, powerful tree here. There's no towering cedar. Instead. The tree has been cut down. That's Israel. And what looks like Stumpville, a disaster, the Bible says out of this stump, there's gonna come a shoot. I just want to remind you, that is the way that God has always worked in redemptive history. Who would have thought that a baby would come? Who would have thought that a cross would be the weight of deliverance. I just wanna remind you, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Isaiah calls this stump, the stump of Jesse. This is connected to King David, who is part of the family of Jesse. So what Isaiah is doing here is talking about the promise that God made to the people of Israel in 2 Samuel 7 that there will always be somebody from David's line who will be the ruler and their hope is in a future ruler connected to David's family. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here, what God is saying is this, and this is very important, God keeps his promises but in ways that often don't make sense. Some of you need to hear that this morning because you want God to keep his promises in a way that makes sense, but God often keeps his promises in ways that do not make sense. I can tell you, I can look back on the last 
three to four years of my life in pastoral ministry here, and there have been things that I felt like God providentially hindered, that at the time I thought, God, what in the world are you doing? And now I see it, and thank God you rescued me from myself. When you're stumped about your stump, God isn't stumped. Don't tweet that, please. <laughs> Verse two, the source of his power comes from the spirit of the Lord. So it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Those of you who know your Bible's New Testament, baptism of Jesus, what comes down? The, dove, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. God says about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is fulfilling in that moment this kind of calling. So the spirit of God rests upon him and notice what he has. He possesses wisdom and understanding. He has the ability to perceive and understand things correctly. The Spirit of the Lord gives him counsel and might. He knows what to do, and he has the ability to carry it out. I mean, isn't that frustrating when you know what you should do, but you don't have the ability to do it? This ruler has both. He also has the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He has a remarkable level of spiritual discernment. So that's who he is in his essence, but notice what his rule will be like. Here we see that this divine empowerment leads to a rule that's marked by divine and true justice. In verse three, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So he has a love and a passion for what God thinks. He's concerned about the vertical. He's got the vertical right so he can get the horizontal right. In verse three, it says, he shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. His, his way of ruling isn't gonna be just what he sees or what he hears. He doesn't need to see or hear. He knows. Like people who stand before him, we don't need any testimony. I actually know what's really true. Don't you wish for that? In a day and age where there's so much information coming from all kinds of directions, do you not feel what I feel like? Who in the world is telling me the truth? This is a king who doesn't need anyone to tell him the truth. He doesn't need any news feed. He doesn't need any newspaper. He doesn't need an education. He knows. In fact, he knows better than what the people testifying knows. There's an application of biblical justice for those who are exploited and unfairly treated. Verse four, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, those who often are on the outside of fairness and love, he advocates for, he's gonna rule for them. And then verse four, he has an absolute enforcement. It's not just that he decides, but he has the ability to enforce. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So, with all the talk and debate about justice today, two things stand out in this text. First, this is the starting point for what true biblical justice is. So, you have to start here to understand what you even mean by the term justice. And secondly, as a Christian, we need to rejoice that there is coming a day when Jesus will bring true justice. I can hardly wait for that day. In the meantime, God calls us to love our neighbors by doing whatever we can to advocate for the kind of compassionate care that we see in this text. And whether it's in your neighborhood or in your school, in your business, in the courts, in our legislatures, 
People who long for Jesus, people who love Jesus, people who love the gospel, find ways to love their neighbors. You gotta figure out how to do that. You may not do that like I do that, but we have to do it in some way. Because connecting to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords means that this vertical translates into horizontal. The hope in Isaiah 11 is a leader, he describes here, whose belt is righteousness and faithfulness. So what what do we need? What does the world need? What do Christians long for? We need a leader who wears righteousness like a belt and faithfulness as a garment. In other words, we need a righteous savior. And the glorious truth of what it means to be a Christ follower is we have a king. His name is Jesus. He's our savior, and he will win the day. The hymn writer William Chapman, who, by the way, was born in Richmond, Indiana in 1859, captured this truth. He said this, friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my savior, makes me whole. You see, in Jesus, we find not only a leader who is righteous, we find a leader who can make you righteous. That's unbelievable. That Jesus is the person, the Savior, that we need. The second thing that we need is a place. And what do we need? We need a, we need a peaceful home. And, and verses 11, or 6 through 16, rather, describe this home. Human beings inhabit places, and we're connected to the spaces that we live. When you're far away and you say, oh, I can't wait to get to my own bed, it's not just about comfort, it's about a deep sense of rest. Locations define us. That's why when you meet somebody for the first time, you might ask them, where are you from? Because where they're from tells you something about them. Or maybe there's a place that when you just walk into it, you just feel at rest. Maybe a mountain range, maybe a beach, campground, your little man cave, library, a place where your soul is at rest. I remember coming into this sanctuary and having it be filled with people when we didn't have services for so long, and there was just a sense of singing together and hearing God's people collectively worship, my soul found rest. I don't think many of us understood how important that corporate gathering was until it was gone. Well, verses six through 16 describe this place, this place of a future reign of a savior, and what's interesting is he describes the created order. He talks about a wolf and a lamb and a calf and a lion and a cow and a bear and a nursing child. And the reason he's talking about this is that God's plan for redemption is not just to save individuals. God's plan is to take wherever sin has affected the created order to redeem it. Now he does that through individuals, but his goal is not just to save individual people, but rather for the whole creation to be rid of the presence of sin. Everything that's broken in the world, in people and around us, has its genesis in 
what it means for the world to be filled with sin. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation groans under the compromising infection of sin. Those of you who've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes the spell of the white witch over Narnia as it's always winter and never Christmas. Or we sing the song, Joy to the World, the line goes like this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. So the hope of the gospel is that Jesus comes to set individuals free from the curse of sin, and then he comes to set the entire creation free. That there is coming a day when God will reverse the curse. Verses six through nine describe the otherworldly peace that will characterize the reign of Jesus. Now, really quickly, this describes a particular moment in the future, and Christians of different persuasions even Christians within our own church and even Christians, pastors on our staff have a different perspective as to what exactly this means. It's an intra-family discussion. You shouldn't divide you know, relationships or friendships over this kind of issue. Nearly everyone agrees that this text describes something in the future. Some Christians believe that this describes the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Other Christians, including myself, think this is describing the events in Revelation called Revelation 20 called the Millennial Kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ, which includes the regathering of Israel. So there's lots of different perspectives. It's really important in our day and age when people are dividing over all sorts of things that this is something that Christians shouldn't, you should still be friends with people who are wrong, right? So, right? so I mean, I, I got pastors and I'm like, no, man, you're, you're like totally wrong, but I love you, but yeah, and Today, I'm gonna get it on Monday from brothers who are like, no, man, that's not right, but you know what, they're wrong. So anyways, <laughs> here's what we all agree on, though. This is it. Don't miss this. For all of the intricacies, and if you wanna know more about this, then take one of our classes on theology and study eschatology and have a lot of fun um, <laughs> trying to discern all of what this means. What it means is this. The reign of Jesus creates peace. Think of that. So what does it look like? It, it looks like a crazy world that I'd want to live in. Like the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. I mean, you know what happens to the lambs when they get in the wolf pen. They don't last very long. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion. And the fattened calf, like a juicy little calf. I mean, it's like medium rare kind of calf, right? And the lion are hanging out together. And then it says, a little child shall lead them. So last night, my, my, my wife and daughter and I went to the um, Indiana State Fair, and we happened on Pigville. I mean, it was like crazy town in there. It never ceases to amaze me. Little kids leading big pigs around with little sticks. In fact, one of those pigs got loose and ran after my wife, and she squealed. Ah! And the pig was squealing, she was squealing, right? It was a... Imagine if it wasn't a pig. Imagine if it was a lion. You're leaning it with a stick. The idea is that the whole created order has been upended. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine? Cobra coming out with its head and then a little baby's going, goo, 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 goo. I mean, what? The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den like this poisonous snake, and he's like, good snake, good snake. It's just, 
It's crazy. And then it says in verse nine, this is what's so glorious about it. They shall not hurt or destroy in my mountain. Here's what's really glorious. As amazing as this is, here's what's really, really compelling. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the knowledge of God's glory will be known by everyone. In that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him the nations will inquire. So not only is it glorious because the glory of God is over the entire sea, and it covers the whole created order, but it's also that God's vision is a global people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we see it here again, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, now Isaiah 10. God is interested in the redemption of people from every particular ethnicity, and people group, God loves the world. Verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time and recover the remnant that remains of his people. So I take this to mean that God particularly now in this moment is offering hope to his people Israel that from all of these nations to which they have been scattered that there will come a moment where Israel will be regathered. They will no longer be banished. They're, they're heading into exile and so God offers hope to them that he will raise a signal. He will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So this division that they've experienced is one day gonna be over. And look at verse 13. This is really, really important. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. The intra-family fights that were happening in Israel, the historical generational divides of the Hatfields and McCoys, the northern and southern tribes, the intra-family squabbles and the divisiveness, that thing is gonna be gone. And they'll work together, verse 14. They shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, they shall plunder the people of the east, they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. He will lead his people across in sandals, it's like his exodus again, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. The idea is that God is going to bring Peace, peace to historical animosities, peace to the created order. And that's a peace, I don't know about you, that I long for. It's a peace that I see increasingly less. I was hoping that this fall would be more peaceful. No. I was reading an article by Jonah Goldberg reflecting on the intensity of this season and just kind of lamenting the fact that it appears that pastorally, I'm just gonna to have to help us think through of a longer season of conflict and how do we navigate meanness that just seems to be part of the cultural air that we breathe. People drive mean, they shop mean, they post mean, they write mean. Goldberg says this, the fact is that intense epidemics and grim public health crises don't generally result in social renewal because they make us fearful of those around us. They tend to drive us apart and bring out the worst in us. 
And then he said something that blew my mind. He referenced the great plague in Athens in 430 BC. He writes this, although it brought out courage and virtue in some Athenians at first, over time, the epidemic in Athens in 430 BC coarsened civic life. People became afraid of one another and abandoned all propriety to protect their families. One Athenian historian named Thucydides, a name I worked really hard on, um, wrote this, the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen to them next, became indifferent to every rule of religion or law. So one of the things at the end of the sermon I'm just gonna connect is how, how do Christians live right now in light of this coming kingdom? How, how do we embrace the mindset of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How do we live for this King Jesus and this future kingdom so that we live differently right now? Because this stuff isn't meant just to help us know how the future ends, it's meant to show us what that's like so that we might know how to live now. So a person, a place, quickly here, a praise, because verse 12 now extends into this worship and he's telling them that this is what you're going to say in that day. In that day you will say, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. In other words, the people of God are realizing that because of the sin in the world and the sin in them, that the brokenness of the world is creating divine discipline in order to get their attention. And can I just remind you that God didn't stop doing that in the Old Testament, he's still doing that even now. Verse two, behold, God is my salvation and I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. In other words, the people of God are so enamored with this person and this place that this praise from their lips, they can't help themselves. He says, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. That word you means collectively. It's like, it's like the writer here Isaiah turns not just from his praise, but now he's looking at other people and he's saying, with joy, we, it's you all, will draw water from the wells of salvation. So we're gonna be encouraging one another and helping each other. He says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. And then he says, shout. And sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The idea is that the people of God, in light of the person and in light of the place, are to hear their praise in the future as a present day motivation for their ability to sing their way through the storm. The idea is that they would be able to shout and sing for joy because God has delivered them and the Holy One of Israel is in their midst. He's near, he's close, he's personal, he's with them. God's people can't help themselves because they're so overcome with the beauty of what God has done for them. And I trust that you know that every human being worships something. We're divinely wired to have affections, to love and to praise things. So listen to me, the issue isn't if you worship, but what you worship. What makes you happy? What do you love? What motivates you? What is the fuel underneath your soul that creates hope? 
That then leads to endurance and kindness and grace and mercy. The, the idea is this, is that Christians are so captivated by the grace of God to know that he has rescued us from ourselves that we can't help but sing. Now, why is this in the Bible? Here's why. Very quickly, 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 through 12. Listen to this text. While I was working on this sermon, this passage just kept ringing in my ears. Why are things like this in the Bible? Let me tell you very clearly. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. In the day of the Lord will come, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are in them, or, or the works that are have done on it will be exposed. And then Peter says this, listen carefully. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter is saying is this. In light of all of this, this is not just meant to be studied and marveled and looked at. It's meant to be, that's meant to be done at one level, but that reality is meant to translate into a present living practical obedience and freedom. Revelation is relevant to how you live tomorrow. So there are implications of this kind of hope. Let me give you a few in conclusion. Since we are hoping in a future home, a future home we can turn from idolatry and anxiety in this age. We can remind ourselves, this is not my home. I'm just passing through. We can stop curling our fingers around the things that we think provide security. Since we're hoping in the person of Jesus, we can live for his glory and model humility. This is a great time to be alive. The difference between angry people and nice people is really clear. Let's be nice people. <laughs> Let's show people that Jesus actually works, that it really matters. It affects how you check out at the grocery store. It affects how you drive, how you talk, how you respond to criticism. Like following Jesus is supposed to work. If it doesn't work now, it doesn't work at all. Since I'm hoping in God's grace, I can trust that God's gonna supply everything that I need. You think the stock market's powerful? Jesus controls kings and sets up kingdoms. Since I'm hoping in God's mercy, I can produce, I can, not produce, I can pursue obedience and kindness and love for other people. Since I'm hoping in God's kingdom, I can do whatever I can to fulfill Jesus' prayer right now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And since I am resting my hope on God's promise, I can have joy that is out of reach of painful circumstances. I can have a joy that is un inaccessible by painful and difficult moments. I can have joy that is outside of broken people and fierce opponents. Since I'm hoping in God's plan, I can be at rest. I can start my day releasing my expectations that rob me of contentment because I love your kingdom, I love your ways.
I love you as my king. I love my future home. And in so doing, there's freedom. Here's why. Because hope is stronger than fear. And the Christian's hope is based on the righteous reign of Jesus. So as Isaiah 12 says, College Park, shout for joy and sing. For great in your midst is your Savior and King. His name is Jesus, and he reigns. The problem, Jesus, is that I know that's true, but it doesn't take a lot for me to act like it's not. So would you help us? Help this not just to be a truth that we affirm in this moment, but rather to be the kind of biblical guidance that helps us on the ground, very practically, in how we conduct ourselves in the midst of a season that is hard and painful and full of pressure. Jesus, this is an amazing time to be alive because things have been stripped away and all we have is you. It's so hard and yet it's so good. So help us. And as we sing together, would you reinforce these truths as we sing them to each other and to you that you, oh Jesus, reign supreme. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.